First John chapter five, verses one through five. I'm going to go ahead and read them. Um, but this is what God's word says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? In this short passage, um, in these first five verses here, uh, we really see sort of two streams of thought that John is presenting. Uh, They are definitely um, interrelated, but there's really two different ideas here. One is John is giving us a summation in the first two verses of everything he's told us thus far in the book of 1 John. It's very succinct, but it's a summation of everything he said. And then in verses 3 through 5, he moves on to a specific reality that is true because of Jesus Because Jesus has adopted us, uh, because God has adopted us through the work of Jesus to be his sons and daughters. And we'll get to those things in just a second here. But as we look at these first few verses and sort of begin the last chapter, I just want to remind us all what John has been doing throughout this book. In that John has been dealing with the same ideas over and over and over as he's moved through this book. But he sort of examined those ideas in different ways all along. Um... He's been looking at different topics from different angles, maybe like a jeweler would do with a precious stone and looking at it from various facets and talking about the implications and what these things mean for God's people. And so over and over, John has dealt with God's love for us and he's dealt with our love for one another and he's dealt with knowing truth and he's dealt with knowing that God is love and he's dealt with knowing that God is light and how we ought to live in light of these things. And when I was thinking about this Um, book in this last passage this last week, it's almost like John has written a symphony and um, there's an orchestra playing it and there's this melody that shows up throughout the symphony, right? And sometimes it's the strings that's playing the melody and, uh, and we think it's beautiful and we're just intent because we love it. And sometimes the woodwinds are playing the melody and we're kind of like, what are those instruments? I don't know what those are. And then it's like the brass band is playing and it gets our attention. I don't know if you've ever heard a New Orleans brass band, but you can't hear one without getting up and uh, being a part of what's going on. And so sometimes it's like John is playing the melody with strings and then woodwinds and then brass and whatever. But in chapter five, John takes all of those instruments, comes to a close and sort of moves towards a crescendo at the end of chapter five with everybody playing together. Now, if we back up for a second and we think about all the reasons that John has written this letter, all the reasons we've talked about over this summer, all the things we've seen, John at various times has said, I'm writing to make your joy complete. I'm writing to make our joy complete. I'm writing that you may not sin. I'm writing to remind you of the forgiveness that you have in Christ. I'm writing to confirm the truth that's been given to you. I'm writing to assure you of the eternal life that you have in Christ that has already begun. Right. And if we sort of bring all these reasons together and look at John from sort of an eagle eyes point of view, we could say that John is writing 
to assure these believers in this church that has been split, that has been ravaged by false teachers and what John called antichrists, literally people who were antichrist. He's writing to assure them in the faith that he has passed down to them. He's writing to say, you can know that your faith is sure. You can know that you belong to God. He's writing to assure them in their faith. And he's writing to sort of counteract some really weird Gnostic beliefs that have taken hold in this church. We've talked about some of those things over the summer. But part of how John does that, part of how John writes to provide assurance is that along the way, he's given pointers. He's given a signpost to know that we belong to God, that we are God's children. Right? One of those signposts that he's given along the way has been theological in nature in that John has said over and over, you can be assured of your adoption by God based on what you believe about Christ. In chapter 4, he said this, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Right? That's one signpost he's given us. It's been about belief. Another signpost he's given us has been about um, has been moral in nature. And chapter three says this, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John has given us another signpost along the way that's been social in nature. And we've been talking about it repeatedly over the last few weeks. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So along the way, John has been saying that these signposts, these tests point to Jesus, point to our standing with Jesus. Like test about your belief in Christ, test about the way you live, test about the way that you love one another, a test that allow you to have some assurance that you belong to God, that we've been adopted by God and that we've been given new identities as sons and daughters of the king. It's important to note that at no point has John been saying that doing these things are what grants you some standing with God. It's not doing these things that save you or that give you assurance. Jesus is the one that provides assurance. But, but John is saying these signposts point to the fact that you belong to God. What you believe, how you live, how you love one another. John is saying that if these things are present in your life, then they're indicators of your new birth. They're indicators of your new identity, right? They're indicators of the fact that you are sons and daughters of the kings. Now, whereas the weird sort of false prophets and Gnostic teachers in the church would have been saying, you have to do something else in order to be saved. John is saying, Jesus has done the work for you. And these are indicators of the fact that you belong to God because Jesus has done the work you can be assured of a right standing with God because of what Jesus has done. And here are some indicators of your new standing with God. And so when we get to chapter five and when we get to the first two verses of chapter five, like I said earlier, there are two things going on here in verse one and two. John is recapping in a very broad sense all of those things that I just talked about, those those signposts. And then. In verses 3 through 5, he sort of um, talks about a specific new reality that is true of people who belong to Christ. 
who belong to God as sons and daughters. And we'll get to that in a second. But if we just break these first two verses down into three separate, um, three separate sentences here, we see these three main ideas that John has been presenting all along. In verse 1, in the first part of it, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Well, that's the theological test that John has been presenting all along. What do you believe about Jesus? Verse 1, the second part says, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's the social test of loving one another that John has been talking about repeatedly. And then in verse 2, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Right? And that's the moral test of obedience that John has been talking about throughout this book. So all of that to say, verses 1 and 2 are really like John is using the entire orchestra that I talked about earlier to remind us of the melodies that he's been playing all along. That Jesus has loved us in such a way that God has adopted us as his sons and daughters. That we can find assurance in what Jesus has done. And there are ways in our lives that we see sort of signposts that point to the fact that God has adopted us and changed us. And we can have assurance in those things. Then in verses 3 through 5, John sort of moves not to a new melody, but maybe to a different variation of that melody. And it's a specific reality that is a result of our new birth, our new identity in Christ. John really hasn't talked about it in this way throughout the book, but as he brings his letter to a close, it's like he's introducing this reality that is true of God's people. And the reality that's true of God's people is that God's people can overcome the world. Let me read that again for us. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had to overcome an obstacle in your life? Whatever it might be. Something related to work. Something related to a relationship. Something um, academic, something athletic. Has there ever been an obstacle that you've had to co- overcome? A few years ago, uh, Amy and I uh, signed up to run a Spartan race uh, in Atlanta. And I don't know if you've seen a Spartan race or been in a Spartan race. It's an obstacle course race. There's a lot of things you have to go over. There are things you have to go under. You have to go through mud. You have to go through water. You have to do all these crazy things, right, to complete the race. And um, So we were doing the Spartan race in Atlanta and our girls decided, or maybe we decided for them. I don't really remember, but our girls decided that they were going to do the kids race. And so like at the beginning of um, the day, there's like a half mile kids race and a mile kids race. And I don't remember which ones our kids signed up for, but I remember Natalie and Laurel were both in the same group together. They were lined up with, I don't know, 50, 60, a hundred other kids getting ready to start this race. And uh, I don't know if you know my daughter, Laurel, but if you do, um, you know that she's a pretty intense person. She's a competitor. Um, she likes to win. Um, intense. Let's just go with that. And so the race starts and immediately in front of them is an obstacle that the kids have to go over. I can't, I don't remember what it was. I just remember they're supposed to go over it and keep going through the race. And so Laurel takes off from the start line and she's running as fast as she possibly can. And she gets to the first obstacle and she runs right around it. 
and gets in front of all the kids and uh, put herself in a position to finish faster um, because she wanted to finish first, right? She missed the whole point of the race, though. The whole point of the race wasn't just to finish. The whole point of the race was to overcome the obstacles on the way to the finish, right? And what John is talking about here is this idea of overcoming something. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Right. Part of what it means to be a child of God. Part of what it means to live in our new birth. Part of what it means. And and John talks about that right here over and over being born of God. Part of what it means to live in our identity of being in fellowship with God through a new birth. Being a new creation is to overcome the world. So what does that even mean? Let's talk about that for a second. Verse 3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments as commandments are not burdensome. Sometimes people equate keeping commandments with loving God. We'll hear a verse like what we have here, or we'll hear something like John 14, 15, where, we, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right? There's a clear distinction, though, between loving Christ and obeying Christ. If you love me, that's one thing. You will keep my commandments. That's another thing. The one leads to the other, but they're not identical. You see, in the West, in our culture, in our society, and it's actually, I think, built into the foundation of our Western culture that we define freedom as us as individuals being able to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, however we want to do it, with no limitations. And the idea of, of obeying rules, the idea of somebody else telling us what we can and can't do, the idea of laws that hinder us in our quest for individual freedom, well, sometimes we just see those things as a hindrance. Because in the West, we're all about being our own lords, our own masters, our own rulers. Because the individual is king. Part of what it means to overcome the world that John is talking about here, though, Part of what it means to overcome the world is to move from pursuing our own desires to pursuing the desires of God's heart. All right, so listen to what David says in Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Right, for God's commandments to not be burdensome, we have to learn to see that what God calls us to is actually good for us and not bad for us. When God calls us to do something, it's not burdensome to do it. It's actually good for us, right? And we need to cultivate the truth that God's ways are infinitely better for us than our ways. And the reality is they either are or they aren't. And what John says here is that God's commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. And and we have to get to the reality. We have to cultivate the truth that God's ways are infinitely better than our own. Even when it doesn't make sense to us. Right? And here in the book of 1 John, we've seen it over and over and over that God is calling his people 
to love one another. You cannot read chapters 3 and 4 like we've done over the past few weeks and not be overwhelmed with the fact that the height of Christ's likeness is loving one another. It's just all over this book. John is commanding us to love one another. He's given us that command. He's told us how Jesus is the example of that command or, or, or that truth. Jesus is the example of love and he's called us to love one another like Christ has loved us. And I think that when John here says that God's commands are not burdensome, what he has in mind is this command that he's been giving us for two chapters now to love one another. So that begs the question of if that's what John is calling us to, and John is saying that these commands are not burdensome, what stands in the way of us being obedient to the command to love one another? What, what gets in the way of that? Well, I think John gives us a picture of that in verse 4 when John says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We'll miss the point of this verse if we're not clear about the definition of the word world here in this verse. If we read the word world as sort of the created order around us, the the created world around us, then we've missed something that John has already told us back in chapter 2. And not only that, if we're thinking of world just in terms of what's created, we probably have a pretty Gnostic mindset that John is writing to overcome in this church. But let's look back at what he says in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 16. He says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, I think what John has in mind when he talks about overcoming the world, when he talks about overcoming the things that present that prevent us from being obedient, the things that prevent us from loving one another like he's called us to do, like Jesus has modeled for us. When he talks about these things. I think that what John has in mind. Are our own personal desires for things and for gratification that get in the way of us pursuing the desires of God's heart. The things that prevent us from seeing God's command as good for us, rather than burdensome to us. What he has in mind are the things that we love more than we love God. The things that occupy places of prominence in our life, such that they will prevent us from loving God and loving others. It's the desires for what we don't have, and it's the pride in what we do have. When we don't have the things that we want, the stuff, the gratification, the pleasure, right? The world corrupts us with covetousness for those things. And when we do have what we want, the world corrupts us with pride. And sometimes those things keep us from loving God and loving one another. We love stuff. We love to be gratified. We love to experience pleasure. And when we don't have what we desire, we crave it. And when we do have it, 
we talk about it incessantly and hoard it and try to get more of it. And where is God in all of that? Right at best, he's just a cosmic Santa Claus. And we may thank him for bringing us our stuff, but it's really the stuff we love. And we certainly don't treasure him as our father, nor value the desires of his heart when we're occupied with our own desires and our own wants. The main reason we don't love God and find it burdensome to love people is that our cravings are for the things of the world such that they have become our idols. That's why if you fast forward in chapter 5, John finishes his book by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because it's the idols of our heart, the things that we love, the things that we desire, the things that occupy our hearts and minds more than God. Those are the things that prevent us from doing what God has called us to do here. C.S. Lewis had this to say about our worldly desires. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Right? Does that resonate with you guys? Does that hit home? Does that hit hard? Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Does that describe us? Far too easily amused by the desires of our hearts when God is offering us something so much greater. Right? And I, I think that's a universal problem that the world faces. But what John gives us here too is a solution to that problem. The solution is the reality that our fellowship with God, our adoptions as sons and daughters, the fact that we are born of God, like John talks about here in this passage. The solution is that our fellowship with God, our new identity in Jesus, severs the root of those cravings for our idols. Overcoming the world means that our desires and our idols don't rule us anymore. Overcoming the world means that our desires have no sway over us anymore because their power is broken. At the end of John chapter 16, as Jesus is nearing the crucifixion and resurrection, he says this to his disciples. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The reason that we know that our identity in Jesus severs the root of the cravings of our heart for idols that occupy the place that God should occupy. The the reason we know that our identity in Jesus severs our ties to those things and sets us free is because Jesus has already defeated them. The reason that we know that we are free is that Jesus has already won the victory. Jesus loved us by dying on the cross in our place. And Jesus defeated the idols of our heart, the desires of our heart, the pride in what we have, the the longing for that which we don't have. Jesus defeated those idols when he rose from the grave. Right? And in his victory, he has overcome the world 
that we might overcome the world as his sons and daughters. He has released us from our sinful desires in order that we might love one another, in order that we might exhibit the Christ-likeness of love that John has been calling us to repeatedly in this book. Jesus has won the victory. And the reality of belonging to Jesus is that Jesus has provided a way for you to defeat the desires of your heart. Scripture tells us that our hearts are unbelievably wicked. And yet Jesus has provided a way for us to be set free. To love one another. Just last week in El Paso, we saw a young man so captive to the evil desires of his heart that he willingly and with obvious intent took the lives of people who did not deserve to lose their lives simply because he worshipped the idea that he was better than those people. His heart was so maligned, so captive to evil and wickedness And let's be real for a second. That's what white supremacy is. It is not something to be toyed with. It is evil straight from the pits of hell. But his heart was so captive to that evil that he hated his neighbors to the point of death. Don't you think for a minute that the evil desires of our heart will not lead us to incredible depths of depravity? But Jesus has provided a way for us to be freed from such evil. Jesus has overcome the world that we might be set free. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the grave, defeated our idols, defeated the desires that rule our hearts and lives, that we might be set free to love one another. We might be set free to love one another. So what's my point in all of this? First two chapters of, I mean, the first two verses of chapter five, we're reminded of the assurances that God has given us to know that our identity is him. That we're born of him rather than of the world. We see it in what we believe. We see it in how we love one another. We see it in how we um, seek to be obedient. And in the next few verses here, that we just looked at, we're reminded that this new birth means that Christ intends for his people to overcome the world. And that, in fact, Christ has already overcome the world. He's defeated the idols of our heart that we might be free to love one another. So, beloved, as John would say, little children, beloved, those who are loved by God, Let's rest in the victory that Jesus has already won. Jesus has defeated our idols. Jesus has defeated the desires of our heart. He's replaced those desires with a love for God and a love for one another. Beloved, little children, let's live in that victory and let's love one another because of it. To those of us who are in this room who may still be captive to the evil desires of our hearts. Please know that Jesus has done something for you that you could never do for yourself. He's set you free. 
He's provided a way for you to be set free. So please come to Jesus and be set free through the love that Jesus has shown us through the work of Jesus on the cross, through his resurrection. We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday here at Redemption. And during this time of response, there are really a couple of things that we want you to do. We want you to uh, sort of reflect on what we've heard this morning, um, to think about what God has said to us, how the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and minds to draw us to himself, to lift Christ high. Um, During this time as well, you have an opportunity to worship by singing. The band will come back and lead us in some more songs. Give us a moment to to worship in that way. We have a moment to worship by giving. There's a giving table in the back. We can put our tithes and offerings as an act of worship. We have an opportunity to take communion. Uh, Every Sunday here at Redemption, we take communion. And you can come down this side aisle tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. And so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. The reason we take communion every Sunday is that scripture tells us that when we're doing this, we're remembering what Christ has done for us and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it and that it's true. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, whether uh, you're a part of this, uh, a member of this church or not, we invite you to come and take communion. Um, And so remember what Christ has done. And so proclaim to one another that it's true and that we believe it. If you're here and you can't remember those things, if you can't proclaim those things, then please don't feel obligated to take communion. But that opportunity is here um, to do so. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll move on from there. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this reminder in your word of this incredible new identity that you've given us, God, that ultimately leads to freedom. And that ultimately leads to an incredible relationship with you. God, thank you for the way you've expressed such love for us through Christ. God, I pray even now as we continue to worship, as we take communion or sing or pray or whatever it is, God, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds to draw us to you. Pray that Jesus would continue to be magnified in this place. God, we ask all this in the name of your precious son. Amen.